Hi, I'm Robert Vaughn, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. The title of my book is A Fortunate Life. Why was it fortunate? Read the book. Robert Vaughn. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Hi, this is Brian Zemrak, and this is episode 94 of On Screen and Beyond, and this week we have Oscar nominee Robert Vaughn. That's right, the man from UNCLE, Napoleon Solo, is going to be joining us. He has some great stories to share with us, and he has a new book out in paperback, and he's going to be talking about that and a whole lot of other stuff. There's just so many things. Of course, he was a man from UNCLE, and he was uh, in movies, and he also was in, um, he is in Hustle, of course, in uh, Britain, and all sorts of stuff. So we're going to be talking about all those things, so stick around for that. And uh, I want to thank so many listeners from all over the world who are now listening to On Screen and Beyond. And uh, it's it's just everywhere. So tell your friends, and we'll spread it some more and let people hear these great guests that we have right here on On Screen and Beyond. And uh, I was thinking the other day something we could do. Uh, I need your help on this one. What I'm going to be doing, or hopefully doing, is saying hello at the beginning of the show in a certain country's language and goodbye in a certain country's language. Uh, so I need your help. If you want to send me how to say hello and goodbye in your country's language, you can send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, telling me how to say hello and goodbye. And uh, we'll, we'll start doing the shows like that, starting off with a hello and a goodbye. Um, but, you know, it, it is in an e- email, and uh, I'll probably screw it up, and uh, <laughs> at least you'll get a good laugh out of it. Uh, we'll see what we can do. So send those to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And coming up in a few minutes, the man from Uncle Napoleon Solo, Robert Vaughn, is joining us. So stick around for that. But first, let's take a look at remakes coming up right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. And as far as remake madness, it looks like rumors are out that Denzel Washington and Will Smith will be joining forces in a remake of Uptown Saturday Night, which in 1974 starred Bill Cosby and Sidney Poitier. And a remake of 2007's The Orphanage is in the works, with Del Toro as producer and co-writer. And 1987's Mannequin, which starred Andrew McCarthy, is headed down to the remake path. And it currently is in the early development stages. Of course, uh, it's doubtful that the original characters or people will be playing those characters. But uh, we'll see what happens. We'll keep you updated. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next, upcoming movies on screen and beyond. As far as upcoming movies, Dennis Quaid will play President Bill Clinton in a film called The Special Relationship. Okay, it's not what you think. It's about his relationship with British Prime Minister Tony Blair. And look for release later this year. And Rob Pattinson will star in a film called Bellamy, along with Uma Thurman and Christina Ricci. And Dwayne Johnson, Billy Bob Thornton, and Selma Hayek will star in Faster. And that's it for upcoming movies. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming away as far as sequels at Sequel City, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Sequels. It looks like a green light has been given to a sequel to the G.I. Joe film. Well, hopefully the G.I. Joe 2 will be a little bit better than G.I. Joe, period. You know. And uh, Johnny Depp fans can look forward to the next Jack Sparrow outing on May 20th, 2011. Disney has announced that as the release date for the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie. And, you know, with the prevalence of 3D now, and just about every movie is coming out that way, they are looking at making a sequel to Twister in 3D this time. Now, Twister 2 in 3D would be a sequel to the 1996 film, and this time they could really make use of the 3D effects with, you know, there'd be crap flying everywhere. So uh, it's uh, maybe this will be one that, you know, really gives you a 3D effect that, that's useful as opposed to some films that are just doing it as a, you know, this one second where they do the, the 3D thing. So anyways, that's about it for sequels. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to take a look at TV on DVD coming up. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, as far as TV on DVD, season one of Flash Forward. Now, it's going to be coming out on DVD on February 23rd with the first 10 episodes. Okay, now if you haven't seen Flash Forward, you might want to check that out because it's a, it's a great show and it's it's sort of like a lost type thing keeping you wondering what's going to be going on and uh, it's uh, check it out. It'll be coming out on DVD. And out this week on DVD also is going to be 21 Jump Street season 1 and season 12 of Dallas will be coming your way with JR and the gang and Weeds another season is coming your way this week and Law and Order the seventh season hits stores this week as far as TV on DVD. And that's about it. Coming up next, right here at On Screen to Beyond, we're going to take a look at movies coming out on DVD. <laughs> movies on DVD. It looks like on January 19th, you can look for The Invention of Lying, starring Ricky Gervais and Rob Lowe and Jennifer Garner to hit stores. And Hilary Duff comes to DVD in Greta on January 19th also, along with Ellen Burstyn. And Gamer, with Gerard Butler, lands on DVD and Blu-ray on January 19th. That's about it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen to Beyond, we are going to have an interview with... Uh, he's just a great person, a great actor. He's Napoleon Solo, the man from UNCLE. It's Robert Vaughn. He's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond, so stick around. He's got some great stories to tell all about his past and Hollywood and politics and all kinds of stuff, and it's right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today's guest on On Screen and Beyond is an actor who was nominated for an Oscar for his role in The Young Philadelphians, co-starred in The Magnificent Seven and in Bullet, won an Emmy for his role in Washington Behind Closed Doors, noted for his roles in SOB, Superman 3, and The A-Team. The list just goes on and on and on. He can currently be seen in the hit BBC show Hustle, and his book, A Fortunate Life, is now out in paperback. But, to me, he will always be Napoleon Solo, the man from UNCLE. It's Robert Vaughn. Welcome to On Screen and Beyond, Robert. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to have me on. It's such a thrill. And, and, I mean, like I was saying, I could have just kept going and going. Your career, you've had such an amazing career. <laughs> yes. That's uh, the reason I wrote the book and called it A Fortunate Life, because serendipity, in a very positive sense, has played a major role in my life at almost every twist and turn. Hmm. And, and what sparked you to, to write the book? Well, I, the book, as you may or may not notice, ends in 1968 with the uh, uh, election of Richard Nixon. It has nothing to do with the election of Richard Nixon. That just happens to be as far as I plan to go, because up until that point, I had led, led the life of a very cavalier, relaxed uh, bachelor with a good many shekels in my pocket and no obligations whatsoever. Uh, shortly after the election, I met my wife in 1970 in June, and from then on, I became quite a normal person with... Uh, mortgage, uh, wife, and two children, and so on. So uh, that's where I could, I had to make a cutoff some point, and also the publishers didn't want any more words than I'd already written, and over 100,000 at that point, and they, I guess that's a, that's a cutoff point for them in terms of actors' autobiographies. Mm -hmm. it, it, now, is there a possibility that we can have a uh, Fortunate Life Part 2 at some well, point? if the demand requests it, uh, yes. <laughs> so far, I haven't had indication of that in America. However, it has gone to number one in England, where I seem to have a whole different life, but a very profitable life in terms of publicity and, and uh, jobs, and have had that ever since I finished uh, in America in 1968. And it was number one there for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Now, now, was that when you mentioned that? Is was that a conscious thing that you wanted to to go to England and and star in things in 
over well, the it had a lot to do with the events of 1968 and the ongoing war in Vietnam, which didn't end until after 72. Uh, I, I didn't intentionally set out to just work only in England or seek work in England, but it happened that shortly after uh, I finished the Uncle series, which was in the fall of 67, then it went off the air in 68 in January. It was replaced by laughing, incidentally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, at that point, I got a call to go uh, overseas to a film in Czechoslovakia, and then that was followed by a film uh, in... Uh, well, actually, the, the bullet came first, a call from my friend Steve McQueen to do a film in San Francisco in the spring of 1968. And uh, after that, uh, I went to Czechoslovakia, and did a film there, which I write about in the book, which was interrupted by the Soviet invasion of Prague mm -hmm. and Czechoslovakia. And then the next film uh, I did was in England in January of 69. It just, it seemed just, everything kept going back to Europe and back to England. And shortly after I met my wife, I was, uh, although I said I never would do another series because I didn't think I was up to it, uh, I got an opportunity to do a series in London, uh, which took me there in 71 and I was there until 73 I did 52 episodes of a series called The Protectors mm -hmm. for uh, ITM the, um, the uh, commercial station there which was headed up by the famous Lou Grade who became Sir Lou Grade and then Lord Lou Grade he started out as a vaudevillian and he wound up owning half of England <laughs> huh. now when you're writing a book like this uh, is it difficult to look back uh, at, at all the good things and bad things that, that happened I more or less, not intentionally, and certainly not on a day-to-day -day basis, kept pretty much all the material that I had in my life that was written down on paper, starting literally in college in my first year at the University of Minnesota, where I was a freshman at that time. And I just gathered a lot of stuff, and uh, I knew eventually I would write about uh, those events. So it wasn't difficult in terms of researching, because I'd really done that. And as far as uh, the emotional highs and emotional lows, or the good things and the bad things, uh, they had they were in the past, and uh, I think I mentioned in my um, book in one chapter that my grandmother who raised me, my grandmother and grandfather raised me in Minneapolis, and she had a saying that was, live for today, for tomorrow may be as yesterday. And that was kind of stuck in my head when I was a little boy, and I kind of followed that plan throughout most of my life. They were Irish, my grandparents, and I have a feeling as another derivation, another interpretation. I have never bothered to look it up, but anyway, that's where I think it came from, something in Ireland for some reason. <laughs> and so, to be directly, no, it didn't bother me writing the book because I had, uh, I didn't have to work too hard on researching, and I pretty much lived uh, in the present, not in the past. Now, in the book, you have some stories that you've obviously been with uh, so many different actors. Let's face it, you said Steve McQueen, and when you're talking about these people, uh, do you have to sort of step back and look at who you've actually been with, these, these stars like that? Well, since we, in, in this business, if we're successful at least, uh, tend to meet an awful lot of famous people because that's the nature of the business right. degree of if your career is doing well and you're doing A pictures, but you don't really think of them as the stars they really are in terms of the rest of the world. You think of them as the guy you're working with mm -hmm. at that particular moment in time doing this particular story, whether it's on television or in movies. And that's the way it was with Jimmy Coburn, of course, because we went to college together. And uh, he happened to get into Magnificent Seven through quite an accidental meeting of mine with John Surges, the director, which I write about in the book. And then Steve I got to meet in The Magnificent Seven for the first time. I became very friendly with his wife, Neil, who I'm still friendly with now, even though Steve has been gone, I think, since 1980. Yeah. And we were, we remained friends after uh, The Magnificent Seven, which was in 1960, so we being Steve and myself. And I went to races with him. We hung out on the Sunset Strip and over the ladies that were in the, uh, the bars that were there. And... and um, he, in other words, he was. As I, it's hard to explain to the layman, I guess. But uh, if you you know somebody through a job that you're doing, it may be a job in motion pictures. It may be a job, uh, you know, building a building or something. But they become your friends, not your. You know, you're not the architect that you're having your friendship with. It's a friend. Right. Yeah. yeah. And now, when if you that makes any sense. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you were young, was acting your ultimate goal? Oh, there's no question about it. Uh, my mother and stepfather were both stage actors. 
my uh, biological father, who I knew only slightly, was a very successful radio actor in the golden days of radio in New York, which was the 40s. And on my mother's side of the family, her grandparents, people that raised me in Minneapolis, were also actors. And on uh, the one side of that family, uh, one side was Irish, the other side was French. And my grandfather, whose name was Gaudel, G-A-U-D-E-L, uh, his parents were in the Commedia dell'Arte in the 19th century in France. So uh, I kind of was uh, following the family business. Mm -hmm. And I write about, uh, in the book, uh, my mother teaching me that to me or not to be soliloquy from Hamlet when I was well, somewhere between four and five. And once she had taught that to me, I remembered it for the rest of my life and ultimately played Hamlet several times. And she said to me, and I remember this as though it happened yesterday after I had finally learned this little agree, she said, now, Bobby, you are an actor. And I was four or five years of age. I didn't even know what an actor was necessarily. Right. <laughs> but I knew that's what my family did to earn a living. Yeah. And it was, it was an oddball living because sometimes I'd come to New York to join them in the summer and they'd be on Central Park West and a lovely place overlooking the park. And the next summer they'd be in some dump uh, on Amsterdam or something overlooking... <laughs> the garbage of the Hudson River. So uh, I understood at an early age that it was a very chancy business to be in in terms of continuity of security of any kind. Mm -hmm. But I was fortunate, as I say in the book, in terms of serendipity, that two months after I graduated from college in 1956, I went to a play called End is a Man, which was done on Broadway starring Ben Gazar in the leading role, and I played the same role on the... the uh, stage in L.A., and Burt Lancaster came to see me at the urging of an agent uh, the first week the play was on, and uh, signed me to a multiple picture deal, uh, which meant I could do, I had to do two pictures a year for him each year, and incidentally, his uh, company had just won the Oscar the year before for Marty, so they were the hottest mm -hmm. independent company in the, comp in the country in the show business at the time, and that chance meeting with Lancaster, although I never did a picture for him because I was drafted and the picture I was going to do, which was titled Sweet Smell of Success, uh, went to somebody else because I wasn't available. But that play launched my career two months after I graduated from college, and I never had another job in any other business from that point on. So it, I've been very, very lucky, and that once again, that's why I called the book a fortunate life. Yeah, that's a good title. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, who were your movie idols when you were you were first starting out? Well, there were two that were very clear in my mind, and they were vastly apart in terms of style, technique, and the way people thought of them. One was, of course, Brando in the 40s and 50s, particularly the 50s, when he came into the film business. Although I had seen him on stage in the 40s in small roles, and my mother knew a girlfriend of his who he was dating, so I was kind of was aware of him as being a, a somebody, somebody going to be very important in, in show business. At that time, he was only in the theater. And so when he did become important and, and almost iconic in his early years, it wasn't a surprise to me because he had that same effect when he was on the stage in a small part, which I saw him in three different plays and in very small roles. But you couldn't take your eyes off him the moment he walked on stage. And the other person that I became aware of through film, starting in the late 40s was Lawrence Olivier when he did uh, Hamlet. Hamlet, He yeah. produced, directed, and starred in as Hamlet, and then Henry V and Richard III and so on. So those were my two idols uh, sort of in my mind uh, when I really started working in Hollywood in the spring of 1956. Uh, I tell a, a little story which might be of interest to you relating, relating to what I just said. I, I was dating Natalie Wood in 1956, and she had I, I, I'm not going to go into that because it's also in the book. Mm -hmm. But uh, she took me around to various... She'd seen this play opening night. She was at the play. It was called, as I mentioned earlier, End as a Man. And so we got to know each other and we started dating. And this, was, of course, was a big plus for me in my career, too, because she had just knocked Elizabeth Taylor off the front of the fan magazines with her performance niece in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in that summer following the spring of the time I did the play... Uh, she took me around and introduced me to, to uh, the various people in town, uh, casting people and producers and so on, and to heads of studios. And she introduced me to Jack Warner and said, you got to use this guy. He's going to be very hot. You better get him now before he costs you too much money, <laughs> things like that. And she introduced me to Harry Cohen at Columbia one day, who I subsequently did have a contract with. And Harry was sitting on, on a car with a running board, so you can imagine how old the card was. And he was reading the Daily Variety magazine. 
and she came up and she said, Mr. Cohen, I wanted to introduce you to a, a young actor who um, I saw on a play a couple weeks ago. I think is going to be very successful in this town. And she, that was kind of basically what she said. And he didn't even look up. He just said, how big are you? And I said, well, if you mean how tall am I, I'm as tall as Marlon Brando and Lawrence Olivier. Is that big enough for you? And once again, he didn't look up. He just kept reading the paper and said, he had a cigar in his mouth. He said, he'll do fine. And that was my one meeting with Harry Cohen. Hmm. So that's, those are the two actors that most uh, engage my interest in the 50s. Now, do you, do you feel that you've modeled your acting style to what they do, what they did? Not really, because uh, the, the, so the acting style, as you refer to, really in terms of, of the actor's studio and so on, right. is a whole different kind of investigation of how to go against, uh, about the, the practice of acting, uh, whereas the British school is more or less, uh, when you get the right hat and the right costume and the right voice and the right walk and the right hunch of your shoulders, you'll then have your character and you can act. In other words, it's exactly the opposite from the actor's studio, which is very much delving into psychological aspects of the character and your own relationship to those aspects, whereas the British are just much more technical, and, and I uh, it, love their acting. I love their theater. I see plays all the time when I'm there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, so really, uh, it, it, in the cases of plays I've done that required a, a, a less investigative, you know, investigative matter, manner in which uh, to examine the role uh, then uh, well I've done a lot of presidents I've done four presidents right yeah and fortunately when you do a, a real person who has lived or is living uh, there's a wealth of material that you can examine uh, not only film of what they how they acted and how they walked and did and so uh, when I did Franklin Roosevelt I spent a week up at Hyde Park which was his ancestral home not too far from where I'm living right now and uh, I got to see some home movies that no one had ever seen of him before he had polio. And just, there's a whole wealth of stuff to be examined mm-hmm. if you're doing a real person and a real character. Now, if you go into uh, the other point of view, which is uh, doing Chekhov or uh, kind of obscure Russian playwrights in their plays, and they are characters, they are not real people, then you do approach it from a different way in terms of uh, the actor's studio and the method in investigating the psychological being of each character, if you have the time and the interest, and it's a director that will go along with it. One thing I've noticed about uh, your career uh, as you've been acting over the years, you have a certain, um, and I don't know what the, what word I'm trying to think of here, uh, debonair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, even when you're, you know, of course, Napoleon Solo, or whether you were uh, the bad guy in Superman 3, uh, you always did it with a certain amount of class, as opposed to you know some actors who who will go completely you know different. Yeah. <laughs> but but you always have this uh, this air of class to you, and and I, I've always found that to be a very intriguing uh, you know. Uh, it, I don't know if that's just your persona. I mean, <laughs> well, it, it is and it isn't in the sense that that many people have made the comment you've just made over the years since I was very young, in my early twenties and so on. It certainly has nothing to do with my, my background or my life. I mean, I didn't go to Andover or Yale or Harvard. I did not come from a wealthy family. I was not exposed to uh, fancy-talking, intelligent folks when I was growing up. I was around actors, predominantly my friends, my parents, and step-parents. And so there's no reason that uh, I come off this way other than the fact that I guess it was in, in a way kind of built into my character. And I suppose when I was very young, I started being very much aware of the, of speaking as well as I could because I was growing up in Minneapolis, which is a very pronounced Midwestern uh, state, I mean, or city rather, mm-hmm. where people tend to sound like they do from. I mean, there's a film made, uh, I've forgotten who made it, um, where the uh, principal character played by a woman had a, had a very distinct Minnesota sound. And I think to some extent I had that sound when I was between the ages of 5 and 15, but I started thinking about listening to actors on screen, and particularly English actors on screen, and I tried to clean up my Midwestern accent when I was still not even in the business, so maybe that has something to do with it. It certainly has nothing to do with either my financial background, my educational background, or anything like that. Uh, We were closer to poverty than we were to success in our family in terms of show business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, you know, of course, Napoleon Solo, you know, you were always, (laughs) you were always the guy that everybody... (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, I know when you that's, that, actually that was the first time I had an opportunity to play something other than a, a bad guy. Most of the sh- films I'd done before, then uh, I was some kind of some version of a, of a black cat, as we say in the business. Mm-hmm. It's a, the villain who comes into a guest stars on the television show and who's opposing the continuing character who's the hero of the television show, such as Gunsmoke, which I did two or three times. I was always the villain on that yeah. show. And uh, for that reason, uh, when I came to be offered a role called Napoleon Solo, which was indeed James Bond on television, right. everybody quite recognized that fact, I thought, well, now I'm actually going to have to be play a role where I am dressed up and uh, I'm supposedly attractive to women. Now, what what women can I go back and think about and what made me attractive to them? I did give that some thought before I did... Uh, Man from Uncle, but not a lot of thought because uh, it wasn't that much work. (laughs) (laughs) How did you come about getting the role of Napoleon Solo? Well, that's very interesting. I was doing a television series about the Marine Corps called The Lieutenant. Yes. I had starred Gary Lockwood in the title role, and I was his commanding officer, and it was a continuing role uh, in a series that was already on the air, produced by Norman Felton, who ultimately produced Man from Uncle and uh, several other shows on television, including Dr. Kildare and The Eleventh Hour, which was a show about psychiatry. Anyway, we were filming down at Camp Pendleton, south of L.A., and I got a message saying that Mr. F- there would be a script waiting for me uh, at the MGM uh, gate when I came back from Pendleton. Uh, he'd like me to read the script and meet him tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock in his office in the Irving Thalberg building and discuss whether I was interested in doing the part. The name of the script at that time was Solo. It was not named The Man from Uncle. It was called Solo. Uh-huh. Well, we got back around midnight, and Gary was a bachelor at the time, and I was a bachelor, and we hit the Sunset Strip and picked up a couple of cruises and went over to Gary's house in, La- in Laurel Canyon. I didn't get home until about 4 o'clock in the morning, so I got about two or three hours sleep, and I had read nothing of the script. And it was actually a, exactly a 30-minute drive from, from my house to MGM Studios where I was living at the time. So at red lights, I read as much as I could of the script, and I got there in time to make my 9 o'clock appointment. And I came in, and Mr. Felton said, hello, did you read the script? And I said, yes. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, it seems to me it's like like James Bond on television. He said, don't say that again to anyone. He said, we're having a lot of problems with Ian Fleming, who's a friend of mine, trying to get the rights for this television show. He said, that's exactly what we're going to be doing now. Are you interested? And I said, A-OK, count me, and I'd love to do it. Mm-hmm. So he picked up the phone. It was 9 o'clock in the morning in Los Angeles, called New York, and the, the phone call went something like this. Yeah, hello, Jack. Yeah, Vaughn wants to do it. OK, put the phone down. Just call your agent. Have him come in and make a deal. We'll make a deal. That's how I was cast in. It was that quick. Wow. And nowadays, of course, uh, when you're casting the leading role in a television show, uh, first of all, the people that are being considered for the role, they meet a half a dozen 21-year-old MBAs from Harvard who know nothing about show business. Right. But that's just the first. And you can go on meeting people for a month or two before you actually get cast in something. But in those days, business was done with a phone call and shake of the hands, and uh, that was the way it was done. And it certainly worked good back then. Yeah. <laughs> that's worked, for sure. Worked, worked good for me. Anyway, Then, of course, the, uh, there was some... Further litigation about the name of Solo uh, being the, the title of the series, and so they stopped that and uh, made the character named Napoleon Solo. I don't know where that came from exactly. And then they had, then they they always had the Uncle organization, but they had no reason to think that Uncle had to mean anything. But after they canceled the title from Solo, they, they called it the Man from Uncle. They had to come up with something, so they came up with the United Network Command for Law Enforcement. Mm-hmm. And the bizarre thing about that was. At the end of every show, there was a logo that came on the screen. We wish, we wish to thank the United Network Command for law enforcement for their cooperation in this film. And people, when the show became successful, when I say people, I mean thousands of people were writing in from all over America wanting to know how to join the Uncle organization. Jeez. Mm, <laughs> so. Now, now, was the, the the chemistry between you and Dave McCollum was, you know, perfect? Uh, was were you good friends? Well, this is what happened in the pilot, which was a two-hour 
film that we did. Matter of fact, we started shooting it the day President Kennedy was assassinated, and that which also happened to be my birthday. So, an odd coincidence of three things about that day I will always remember. And uh, in the pilot film, David was only on screen about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes at the most, and he had very few words. He was not considered to be a continuing character. Oh. But there was so much female response. When I say female, I'm talking about uh, the tweenies, you know, the, mm-hmm. well, 9 to 12 and uh, 13 to 17 girls wrote in after the pilot went on the air. And uh, so they gradually expanded David's role uh, to be an equal co-star, which, as I mentioned in my book, I was delighted because I had many friends like David um, Jansen who... Uh, found they had no life at all when they were the only star of the our television series. I would imagine that. Would... In addition to being on call and working almost every day, every weekend was filled with flying someplace to do publicity. So the very fact that there were two people starring in the show made it much easier for me. And, we, and to answer your question, we became very close friends. And last Sunday night, or by, uh, on November 22nd of this year, the Players Club that I belong to in um, New York, which is an actor's club, had a, what they call a pipe night honoring me, and David was there with his wife, and everybody got up. They showed clips from the whole 50 years of my career, and various people like Ben Gazar and and David and so on got up and said a few words, and then I said a few words. So it was all, well, to, to answer your question, we were, became friends during the 60s, and we've remained friends ever since. Hmm. Wow, that's, that's good. Contrary to uh, publicity in fan magazines at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, do you remember your first movie role? Yes, it was a film uh, called Hell's Crossroads. It was, very, it was a B film done by Republic Pictures. It starred um, Stephen McNally and Peggy Castle. And it was a story of a guy who shot Billy, uh, uh, Jesse James, a guy named Bob Ford. And I played Bob Ford, and I shot Jesse James, played by an actor whose name escapes me. Oh, Henry Brandon, that was his name, his character, actually. But that was my first movie role, and I was starred along with Stephen McNally and Peggy Castle in Hell's Crossroads. So that was the very first. Then the next film I did, which was where I was introduced, was a Columbia film, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and on the screen, it said, the name of the film was No Time to Be Young, and the picture on the screen was me coming out of my draft board having just been told I'm going to be going into the Army. And instead of introducing Robert Vaughn, which they played at the Players Club uh, a couple weeks ago on my birthday as the opening shot in the clips that they showed. Uh-huh. Jeez. Now, I also read that there was a, uh, an uncredited role that you did in the Ten Commandments. Is that true? Yes. That was... <laughs> um, I was working... I was still in college, and I was working as a Red Arrow bonded messenger uh, out of... Uh, the office, which was on Coenga and Sunset Boulevard, just south of Sunset Boulevard. And uh, also working there at the time was Jimmy Coburn and a, uh, another guy named Zev Buffman. We all had to wear uniforms, and we all drove Willie's overland trucks. And the main job of this organization was to deliver teeth and dental, dental things to dentist offices and pick up and deliver scripts at movie studios. Anyway, Zev Buffman, who went on to become a very successful producer on Broadway, he produced the plays that um, Elizabeth Taylor starred in with Richard Burton on Broadway, and, and he was just successful all over the country in the theater business. Anyway, he was working there at the same time, and we were all still in college, and he called me one day, and I was in the office in my regular uniform getting ready to go out and deliver teeth, I guess. And he said, what color are your eyes? And I said, well, Zev, I didn't know you cared. And he said, no, no, I don't know. Are you, do you have brown eyes? And I said, yes. He said, well, Get your ab, but tuck us over to um, Paramount. They're casting Jews for the uh, Golden Calf scene, and uh, you meet this guy, Billy, somebody, and so on. Tell him I sent you. So I went over there and I met the guy, and uh, he said yes. He said, well, and he called up and he said, we will, we can use you. You look just right for this. And what it was was a, it was really a glorified extra. There were no lines or anything, mm-hmm. and I had to get in about an hour early in the morning and be sprayed over my entire body and put on a loincloth, and I became a Jew in a crowd scene. And Cecil B. DeMille, who directed the picture, had a theory that if you put one real actor in with a dozen extras, they'll, he'll get the extras to act better in their role as extras. 
which was what I was told by the assistant director when I got there. Hmm. So that's how I came to do uh, the Ten Commandments. I, I've never seen, I mean, I've seen the film, but I've never been able to find myself because I didn't have a stop-action yeah. <laughs> pause and remote, but maybe someday I'll search myself. Out. Now, now I, I read also that they said that, you did you ride a chariot? Well, then the, my agent, who I had never got me any work prior to that time, and had not, he had not gotten me this job, as a matter of fact, called me, well, I called him one afternoon about 5 o'clock. He said, what do you call me for? This is my busy time of the day. And I said, well, I'm, they want me to be in this picture. And uh, Billy so-and-so said, uh, I should have my agent contact you. So I did. And that's the story. So anyway, he called me back a couple hours later. And he said, well, he said, I had to work on this for the last two hours. I worked my ass off. Uh, he said, uh, but in addition to playing a Jew in the first week, the first five days, you're going to play... Uh, one of uh, Ewell Brenner's charioteers, and I managed to get you in the first chariot right behind Ewell Brenner. <laughs> so I appeared twice. Yeah, that's Jew. what I, I I saw that they said uh, in the, the, the part I was reading. It said that you can be seen behind Ewell Brenner <laughs> yes. in one of the scenes. Behind you, I was in the first chariot right behind Ewell Brenner, and they told me, you, told me when I got on my chariot, be sure and keep my helmet down over my eyes for fear I should be recognized. <laughs> as the Jew from the Golden Calf scene. didn't make any sense to me, but I did what they said. Well, I find it unusual that they would ask you the color of your eyes, because if you're basically an extra, how would they see that? Yeah, well, absolutely excellent question. I have no idea. I guess they thought people with brown eyes look more Jewish than people with blue eyes. <laughs> but at that distance, it probably wouldn't make any difference. But, yeah, of course not. So, uh, Now, um, if you hadn't gone into acting, what do you think you would most likely have? Well, I probably would have been involved in journalism in some way, or writing, or teaching, or history, or something like that. I've always had a great fascination with history. And I started out, actually, in college at the University of Minnesota, uh, and the only reason I went to college was because uh, the Korean War broke out and I became eligible for the draft, and I wasn't about to go at the age of 19 to Korea and shoot Koreans, or worse yet, have them shoot me. So the way I, to avoid being drafted, I joined the Army. I mean, I, I joined the University of Minnesota, and since I knew I was going to be an actor from the age of five or so on, I thought, well, since I have an interest in sports, I have an interest in journalism, I'll major in journalism, which I did do for my first year in Minnesota. And I covered boxing and football for the University of Minnesota the newspaper, the Minnesota Daily. And then when I moved to California, I knew that in my heart of hearts, I was never going to be a sports writer hanging out in the locker room was talking to Jock. <laughs> I was going to be an actor, and therefore I wouldn't. I switched my major to theater arts when I started going to college in uh, L.A. Hmm. I'd like to take a look at some of the roles you've had, and I'd like you to give us your comments on, on mm-hmm. them. Um, of course, your 1959, your Oscar nomination for The Young Philadelphians. Yeah, uh, that came about uh, in this fashion. Um, I belonged to a health club called the Santa Monica Health Club, which was not in Santa Monica, but anyway. And also, the members of the club, there were people like Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams and so on. And then there was the next group of people, which were made up of people like Rock Hudson and Paul Newman, about 10 years older. And the rest of the club was predominantly made up of retired Jewish businessmen who just sat outdoors all day, and they had many, many telephone stations all over the club. And they kept on, they, they dealt, they did business on the phone with the stock market. Anyway, Paul was a member of the club, and I got to know him. I mean, I knew he was already kind of well-known at that time. And uh, I told him I had sent a script at Warner Brothers where he was on the contract. And he said, he said, well, I don't know anything about the script, but I'm forced to do it because I, they won't let me out my contract unless I do this film. So uh, I went out and met them, and uh, they said, yeah, we'd like you to screen test. And I had never screen tested. I'd already, I'd been acting for about three years at the time, and I didn't was ever asked to do a screen test because I just started out kind of at the top by doing guest starring leading roles mm-hmm. on television so everyone just assumed I wouldn't be uh, there's no need to test me that I was already on the screen quite a bit anyway I came back and I saw Paul the next day and he said well I finally got the script he said Jesus you take that part man that's the best part in the film and I said well they want me to test for it he said well don't worry about that I'll test with you well to have an already established movie star say they're going to do the test with you it was quite a once again, serendipitous moment, and uh, I did the test. The moment that Jack Warner looked at the test, he canceled all further tests, and I was cast in the film. 
And then Paul and I worked every night at that time on some of the scenes at his house in Laurel Canyon, where he lived at the time. And Joanna just won the Oscar for Three Faces of Eve. And the Oscar was sitting on the mantel while we were rehearsing, as a matter of fact. That's how that came about. Yeah. Uh, what about The Magnificent Seven, the next year? I mean, here you are going from an Oscar nomination right into Ma- Magnificent Seven. Yeah, that happened because John Surges, the director, saw a screening of The Young Philadelphia, which is the movie we were talking about with Paul Newman, at the Director's Guild. And I got a call to come out and see him uh, regarding a film. I, he didn't, they didn't tell me what it was. So I met uh, Mr. Sturges, and he said, we have the rights to do uh, a film called The Seven Samurai, an American version, which was Toshiro Mifune's uh, leading role in that, and Kurosawa was the director. Mm-hmm. And it had been quite an international success in Japanese. And he said, we have the right to uh, do it. And he said, I saw, saw you in the Young Philadelphians, and congratulations on your Oscar nomination at a young age. It's very fortunate, he said. But he said, I don't have a script. And he said, we're basically doing that story. So if you know the story, uh, we'll, there'll be a role in there that we'll make sure you are satisfied with. And of course, this was John Sturges, who directed Bad Day at Black Rock and many other important right. films with big stars. So I, I said, sure, uh, yeah, absolutely, no question about it. And he said a very odd thing to me. He said, do you know any other good young actors in town? And I kind of laughed and I said, well, that's actually, that's all I do know are good young actors. <laughs> What did you have in mind? And he said, well, we're thinking of a character that wasn't in the Japanese version. He was kind of a Gary Cooper type. He a laggy, quiet, monosyllabic guy, just kind of on the screen, and gives a good, strong impression on the screen. And I said, well, I know a guy that I went to college with named Jimmy Coburn who fits that to a T. He's about 6'1", got a wonderful deep voice, I said, and he's very stoic. And, and he, oh, good, he said, can you get in touch with him? And I said, well, the last time I heard, he was shacked up in Greenwich Village in New York smoking dope with a black chick. Or I don't think I said black chick at the time. I probably said negress or something like that. Mm-hmm. He said, you know how to get in touch with him? I said, no, but I, I'm sure I can. I, I, I get in touch with his parents. Anyway, I got in touch with his parents. They called him, and uh, he had no money, so he couldn't afford to come out to L.A., but the parents came up with the, with the uh, train, uh, plane fare. And uh, he came out, met Sturges, and that launched his career. Mm-hmm. So that's how that came about. What about Bullet with Steve McQueen? Well, Steve started calling me uh, right around January, first week in January of 1968. He said he just made a deal with Warner Brothers. He's going to produce and star in six pictures. And the first one was called Bullet. It's going to be directed by a guy who did a very successful English movie about a train. Peter Yates, and he said, and uh, I'd like you to send the script over and see if you're on, because I want you to play the, the, the lead heavy, uh, kind of, a, oh, he's a political figure, political, you can't really tell what his occupation is. So uh, he sent it over, and I knew him very well at the time I saw him on a regular basis, I, so I read the script, and I read it a second time. I called him back, and I said, Steve, why are you doing this picture for your first picture? So the picture doesn't make any sense, as the I can't, I can't understand it. I read it twice. There was a long silence. He was given to many long silences. And he said, well, what do, you, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I think you should get it rewritten. He said, where am I going to get somebody to rewrite it? And I said, well, I know an English girl, I said, who reads scripts for me. I said, she'd be happy to read it and give, make some comments. He said, how do I get in touch with her? So I told him. So he hired this girl, gave her, I think, $1,000. And she did a very good job of rewriting the script, making it much clearer. So he sent me that rewrite, and I said, well, that makes sense to me. Uh, I said, but there's still a lot of things I think should be changed. And he said, well, he says, what will I do now? And I said, well, don't take my word for it. I mean, it's your picture. It's your, you know, starting at the gate thing. And so anyway, he sent it back a third time. And each time they sent the script back to me, they raised the offer of my salary, the amount of money. So the third time I got it, the script became very clear to me. <laughs> Much to do with a sizable salary. That's the <laughs> biggest salary I'd ever been offered until that point in time. Wow. So I said yes. And even to this day, even though it was a huge international hit and remained so, particularly the car chase, mm-hmm. still if you follow the story, it's almost not, not, not possible to follow it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But it doesn't make any difference because they had the car chase. Right. They had Steve McQueen. <laughs> <laughs> so. Now, one more film, uh, Superman 3. Now, that was a total change from what you'd been doing. Yeah, comedy. Right, yeah, comedy and... Well, I was doing a film in Yugoslavia, and to show you how much 
money they had in, at, at back in London for Superman. <clears throat> they they said they were interested in me for the the role, the same kind of role that uh, that um, oh what's his name uh, Hackman Gene Hackman had played in the original. Kind of the, wouldn't be the same character, but it'd be the heavy opposed to um, the bad guy opposed to Superman. And Richard uh, Pryor was going to be the guest star in, it, in the comedy. I said, he said this, so this is about the the person talking to me. So this is going to be a kind of a funny Superman. I said okay. So they literally flew the script to uh, to uh, to uh, Yugoslavia, to Belgrade. Then they hired a helicopter, and the helicopter flew out into the wilds of the forests of Yugoslavia where we were filming. Landed in a little patch of grass. Guy came over, handed me the script, and said, "Call this number after you read it." And that's it. Went back in the helicopter and left. And uh, so I read the script, and it was very funny, and I accepted the role, and that's how it came about. Hmm. Yeah. Now, um, I want to switch a little bit, for, because in your book, uh, in case people haven't uh, read it, uh, they, your book is not just about your acting career, but uh, you also get into politics and things. Um, well, in two areas, yeah. Yeah? And one of the ones, is it, I had heard that, is it true that your Dem- the Democratic Party wanted you to run for governor of California in 1966 against no, Ronald Reagan? No, that is definitely not true. It was much publicized, mostly by fan magazines, photoplay a modern screen that I was going to be the Democrats' answer to Ronald Reagan running for governor, which was completely untrue uh-huh. then and now. Yeah, see, you see that on the Internet a lot, and, and I was just wondering, sometimes I like to clear things up like that. Well, clear, clear it up from the, uh, from the source and that was never the case. I was not running for office. At that point in time, when this rumor was going around, I was very loudly and very uh, clearly and on a regular basis on television and on radio denouncing the Vietnam War and mm-hmm. making speeches around the country. And I think that's what got the fan magazines interested in setting up this um, adversarial role between Reagan and myself. Ah, uh, okay. Robert Kennedy was a close friend of yours. Uh, what was he like? Well, uh, I, I met him through um, his children. The children had, had locked onto the Man from Uncle Show and just absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, I think, nine or ten children at that time, and most of them were old enough to be able to watch television. And I was going to SC. I was in graduate school, and I got a call from uh, uh, Mr. Topping, who was the president of SC at the time. He said, uh, Bobby Kennedy and his wife are coming out to uh, make a speech here and so and so, and I'd like you to be their host. And I said, well, you have to call my producer and set it up uh, in terms of making me free, which he did do. And I met Bob and Ethel at that time. And uh, after it was over, we were walking back to his car. And incidentally, it was a Lincoln Continental, the same kind of car that I was driving at the time. And I later found out that the Kennedys always used Lincoln Continentals of that era and pay time because they were flat on the back, and they could stand up on the back of them and make a speech or say a few huh. words. And in other words, they had kind of a, a, a traveling uh, <laughs> vehicle that was allowed them to make a speech by getting them three or four feet above people around. Anyway, uh, he said, uh, she said, uh, are you, what, if you're, well, next time you're coming through, the East Coast, we'd love to have you as our house guest. I said, well, thank you very much. She said, when are you coming through? Do you have any idea? And I, this was in the fall. I said, well, I'm doing a picture in Venice with Elkie Summer and Boris Karloff uh, in the spring. I'm not sure what time. She said, well, whatever the time is, <clears throat> just contact this, my, my social secretary, and she gave me a card. She said, and we'd love to have you as our house guest. So uh, that's what happened. I contacted them. I um, made arrangements to stop over in Washington on the way went out to their home in McLean, Virginia, which is called Hickory Hill, which incidentally was originally owned by Jack and Jackie Kennedy, and they sold it to his brother, to Bobby, for mm-hmm. their home. And they still have it. Ethel is still living there, although obviously the children are no longer there. So I arrived on a late Friday afternoon, and Bobby was in uh, Mississippi making a speech, and he wasn't going to be there the first evening. So all these kids and their minders and and so on, arrived at the airport at National Airport, which is now called Reagan Airport. And uh, in old uh, station, not, you know, station wagons, and with various maids and so on. And they kind of, we went, had a little procession that went back to the house with three or four cars. Well, when I got to the house, the entire outside of the house was covered with Uncle 
posters and so on. So that was basically the way we met. And then through being a guest there many more times, and then when the war <coughs> began to engage me, uh, I began to, whenever I thought it was proper, to engage him and find out what his interest in running would be against Johnson, which at the beginning was nil, and uh, of course later went on to decide to, to do it, and then which ended in the tragedy of his assassination right. in June. So that's how it came about. Wow. Uh, now, your your recent role in Hustle, um, what made you decide to go back to uh, series TV again? Well, um, this is how that happened. <laughs> uh, we live in a small town in Connecticut, and uh, it's subject to blackouts very often. Um, minor electrical storms will mm-hmm. cause the entire area that we live in to blackout. So we learned that very early on, and we had a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, flashlights and uh, battery-operated television sets. In other words, we were completely at ease when these blackouts happened. It would only maybe even be two a year at the most, but we were ready for them. And uh, one night we were sitting there in August. Oh, I have to go back a little bit. In the spring of that year, which was '73. Uh, I was going with my wife to Scotland for the first time. We, we had many trips planned in the past to Scotland, but unfortunately, for one reason or another, we didn't make it. So this year we planned a trip. It wasn't in connection with anything. It was going to be just a vacation to Scotland. So I got a call uh, one night uh, about 9 o'clock our time, which was 2 a.m. in London time, from my London agent saying, are you going to be coming through England time in the near future. I said, well, we're coming through in March, as a matter of fact. They said, we're on our way to uh, to Scotland to uh, and uh, just for a vacation. So, oh, said, that's wonderful. If you could arrange some time when you're in London, the BBC would love to meet you. They have a project I think you're just right for called Hustle, about five con men, actually four con men and one con woman, and uh, they'd like to meet you. I said, well, fine, that's no problem. So they, we arranged a luncheon. And we had a very long luncheon, a very long liquid luncheon, and a wonderful French restaurant, which was one of my favorites. And uh, at the end, we all hugged and kissed and said we would be with each other forever. So that was uh, March. So we went to Scotland, came back, and in the meantime, uh, while I was in Scotland, they had sent me uh, three of the scripts that they were going to do, Hustle, and they also sent me some tapes of another show that they were doing uh, called Spooks, which was about MI5, but in America it was called MI5 on BBC, but there it was called Spooks. And I, I thought the shows were really well done. They were fantastically well photographed, very cleverly done, and the casting was wonderful, and I just loved both the scripts and the films I'd seen of the production company that were going to do Hustle. Mm-hmm. So I said, absolutely, yes, by all means, just as I said at our meeting at the restaurant, I would love to do this even more so now that I've seen the material. So that was March. March turned to May, May turned to June, May turned to July, June, July. And in August, I'm sitting there in Black Dow's house, except for the battery operated stuff, and the phone rings at 9 o'clock at night. Now, when we first moved into this house, we realized that whenever we had a blackout, there was one phone in the garage that worked. Then we had 12 telephones. This was the only one that worked. So this phone in the garage rang, and it was 2 o'clock a.m. in the following day in London. And my agent, Gene Diamond, said, they want you. They started filming last Wednesday. They want you and no one else. Get the next flight out. They want you on the soundstage uh, Wednesday morning. I said, well, what about a deal? And she said, we can make any deal we want. They, uh, they're in the lurch. They, the, the person that they were talking about, it didn't work out. They wanted you from the beginning, no one else, blah, 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 blah. So she said, get there. He said, worry about the deal afterwards, which is what I did do. I, I flew out, I think, Monday night, arrived Tuesday morning, and I started filming on Wednesday, having had uh, some wardrobe uh, obtained and makeup and all that stuff. And so it happened quite out of blue, uh, where I thought it was a, a done deal, and I wasn't going to do it. It wound up not only being a deal I was going to do, but it's the longest job of my life. So we go back to the seventh year wow. in July of this year. It was on AMC for four years right. here. Then AMC switched over and became a full producer on Mad Men. And uh, it hasn't played 
the two shows we did after the first four have not played in America yet. Yeah, hopefully they'll. They'll be. I think they'll be. They'll be on BBC America, I believe. Oh, good, good. And uh, and and you just got back into in November. We came uh, back in uh, the end of October twenty fourth from doing the sixth season. Yeah. And then we just got a green light uh, to be doing the seventh season. Wow. So we'll be going back in probably beginning of July end of June to do season seven of Hustle. Jeez. That's great. Yeah. Now, of all the roles you've done, is there any one that's your favorite? Well, there's no question that Hamlet, which I've done on stage twice, was my favorite because that is, as Olivier said, the ultimate goal of all posters to be investments is to play Hamlet. And there has been as many Hamlets as there have been men, or in some cases women, to play them. Several women have played Hamlet in the, over the years. And that, there's just there's not a, no contest. I mean, it's, it's the most interesting character from a psychological point of view. It's most beautiful from a poetic language point of view. And it's just uh, the ultimate goal. And I've been fortunate enough to do it on stage twice, mm-hmm. the second time at the very famous Pasadena Playhouse when I, while I was doing Uncle. Wow. I have two more questions, and yeah. I appreciate you taking so much time. Yeah. <laughs> um, two favorite TV shows what of all time. Doesn't new or old doesn't make any difference. What would you consider your favorites? Well, I got to put uh, *Curb Your Enthusiasm* and *Seinfeld* as my two favorites. They oh. came out. Of, they came out of the same mind of Jerry Seinfeld right. and Larry Davis. Yeah. Uh, going back, I never really was much of a big viewer of, of television uh, in in the sense of the dramatic format. I watched a lot of news, a lot of history, a lot of. Uh, National Geographic's, but I never really was interested in dramatic television, whether it's dramatic or comedic. Uh, so the, the only time I really made an effort to watch it are these two shows that I just mentioned to you. Yeah. And that became rather late in life. Yeah. Now, what about movies? Well, my favorite movie, I think the, the, the most exquisitely done movie ever was On the Waterfront, not just because Brando finally gave his Oscar performance, but because everybody was... Uh, was wonderful, and I think the picture was nominated for just about everything. Mm-hmm. And two of the other stars won Oscars also. Yeah, that would be my favorite picture. Oh, well, that's interesting, Robert. It, this has been fascinating, and and I really appreciate you taking so much time. Um, of course, you, I just want to recommend to everybody that they get your book. That it was not just about your movie career or TV career. It's it's political, and there's a lot of neat little stories in it and things. And uh, it, it's it's a good book. They should go out and get it. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, the one one thing we haven't touched on, I'll just touch on it very briefly. I became very involved with efforts to reopen the case of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. I devoted an entire chapter in the book to my how I came to be involved with it and my reasons for believing that there was more than one man firing that evening in the Ambassador Hotel at Kennedy. So rather than try to go to tell that story, I suggest uh, your listeners... Uh, get the book and then they have the story. Plus there's a whole chapter with anecdotes I think are very, very funny of the oddball life we live as actors and usually people that have read the book always remark on how funny that chapter is. Mm -hmm. We will put a link so people can get the book. It's a good book. They should check it out. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to say that. Well, we want to thank Robert Vaughn so much for taking the time to talk to us. His book is A Fortunate Life, and you can pick it up at uh, Amazon or any of the other places. Uh, just go to your local bookstore. I'm sure they have it in there. And it's now available on paperback, okay? So you might want to pick that up. We'll also have a link on our website, onscreenandbeyond.com, where you can uh, just click, and it'll take you right to uh, someplace, and you can buy the book. All right? So check it out. He's a great guy. lot of great stories in the book. You want to check that out. And let's see, um, want you to, to remember that, uh, if you get a chance, you know, send us an email, how, on, uh, saying how you say hello and goodbye in your country, okay, in your language. And, uh, I'll see what I can do about starting each show and ending each show with, uh, uh, using another country's language, and we'll see how I can mess it up, because I'm sure I will. And, uh, <laughs> Who knows what it could come out as. But uh, we'll give it a try. Uh, if you want, you know, the if you're uh, computer savvy and you want to just uh, say something on 
your computer in a little MP3 file and send it to me. I could listen to that and uh, actually know how to say it instead of messing it up. So, anyways, that's uh, about it for another episode of On Screen and Beyond. I want to remind you also, oh, just uh, remember to check out our poll question. Go to onscreenandbeyond.com, front page, go all the way down to the bottom. It's right there. Next week, we have a great guest coming your way. We have been uh, having a chance to line up some you know, fantastic people, bring back a lot of memories, can tell us a lot of stories, and it's all coming up on another episode of On Screen and Beyond in the next couple of months. We have some great stuff, plus we have the 100th episode. So a lot of things going on until then, but I hope you have a good week. Catch you next week right here on On Screen and Beyond. Till then, this is Brian Zemrak. Take care. Mm-hmm.